So good morning, everyone. Um, we're in the midst of our retreat. And I trust you feel some of this is arriving. Before reflecting uh, on the specifics of our practices and exercises and their field of application, uh, some practical stuff, we would like to come with you to some agreement about late arrivals from uh, small groups. So if your small group runs over, uh, it is, we've agreed that it is uh, best not to come to the meditation hall. Yeah? That is for the peace of those who are sitting in the hall quietly. And um, there will be still people arriving late, just to be sure. That you know, you do not have an entitlement that nobody will ever arrive late in the hall you have decided to sit in. But let us make an effort to be punctual. Let us make an effort to um, be on time and respect the sanctity of this collective atmosphere in here, which is something precious and uh, has an impact on all of us. There will be veggie washers and choppers who may be arriving late. There will be work groups. So just because we uh, come to an agreement that if your group runs over, you do not enter the next sitting if the sitting has already begun, but go for a walking practice, uh, will not mean that nobody will arrive late. If you happen to be arriving late, uh, then please be very considerate. Uh, make slow movements, consider using the back entrance, yeah, which is a lot less noticeable. Um, and if you happen to be sitting in the hall when somebody is arriving late, uh, consider your own responses, what that brings up, and uh, take this as part of your practice. I'd like to suggest some form of review for this morning. Um, we have heard quite a bit about Vedana, uh, a topic and a practice that is, I think, still undervalued uh, in, 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 many, in many visions of practice. And let me suggest a few things. When we make use of the Satipatthana scheme of, of cultivation, uh, one way of using this scheme is as a as a basic orientation. You know? So we have phenomena of the body, we have phenomena of pleasure and displeasure, we have phenomena of volition and emotion, we have phenomena of thinking. Think of these as four channels. You know? So the whole Satipatthana scheme suggests ways and exercises how to establish mindfulness on the basis and in respect to phenomena in one of these four channels. Now these four channels, they're always broadcasting. You have never a moment without emotion. Every emotion has a somatic tone, whether you're aware of it or not. Every thought has a somatic tone. You never get only one satipatthana, okay? So basically, the satipatthana are a map of all your experience. Not as exercises, but just think of it as a theoretical or conceptual map. Things that have to do with somatic dimension of your experience, things that have to do with the hedonic dimension of your experience, things that have to do with the affective dimension, and things that have to do with the cognitive dimension. Yeah? I'm choosing explicitly non-Buddhist language here. 
So, because that, to make it more recognizable, that's what the Satipatthana territory is. We're always in that territory. And we have always all four of those channels running. Usually one is more dominant than the others, but that doesn't mean the others are not there. Yeah? So, it may make sense to just identify what is it I'm actually dealing with right now. Is this a, is this a thought? Is this something cognitive? An image, also cognitive. Is this an emotion? Something affective? Is this a body tone? Something somatic? Is this pleasure or displeasure? Something hedonic? Yeah, it's just useful to be able to actually name the beast. Okay. So, as a basic orientation, when we begin to sit down, there's a bless you. There's a, bla- a pattern of stuff we do. One of the things we do, we we basically resource. So, if you have a connection to Buddhist teaching, then this would be the moment to take refuge. No Asian Buddhist meditation teacher would ever teach you anything about a meditation method before he or she has taught you to get yourself connected to that in you which is capable of waking up. Before you get in touch with the problem, you get in touch with your resources. That would be the psychological way of framing this. So before you start doing difficult things, inquiry, cultivate, this sort of stuff, you actually acknowledge what's good, what's working, what's okay, what's already happening. Does the ground carry? What do I bring to this? So I connect to my own strength. I connect to here and nowness of my experience. I connect to the energy tone in my body. I kind of connect to my own capacity of alignment. I connect to my own, as... Catherine put it beautifully, my own way of knowing, for example, my sensitivity. Yeah? So before we do any exercises, any tricks, any big jumps and leaps, you know, says, hey, this is me here. You know, it's not, I am not really who I think I am, but it feels like somebody is here and this, you know, and this is happening. That's the first thing. Before we do anything else, we connect to the ground, we connect to gravity, we connect to the orientation of the body in space, and then we kind of orient to posture, tone of, the, of our muscles, of our tissues. Uh, we orient to the body, basically. And then we, we kind of check in. The next is a sort of checking in question, sort of what's happening? You know, what is going? How sleepy am I? How curious am I? How, how moody am I right now? How, how interested? How bored? How, how full of resistances maybe? Before actually entering into the territory, learning to name the territory, learning to acknowledge without having to jump in. Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics has a wonderful little statement. It is, it is the mark of a cultivated person to be able to entertain a thought without either believing or disbelieving it. Yeah. That wasn't a meditator, okay? <coughs> if he can do it, you can do it. <coughs> the capacity to acknowledge and name something without either being a partisan of it or a dissident to it, okay? Just the capacity to name. 
If you're in your file cabinet, you just read the labels rather than entering the dossier, okay? If you want a little more mundane analogy to this. So learning to re read the labels of what's going on, being able to name different departments of your experience. That's where the Satipatthana, even as a map, not even as a meditation instructions, can be useful. So what's, what's happening in the department of body right now? Yeah? What's happened in the department of pleasure, displeasure? Is this actually pleasurable right now, being here? Yeah, mildly, mildly. I wouldn't write home about it, but it's, it's kind of, you know, it's definitely more pleasant than unpleasant. Uh, mood, curious, interested, engaged. Uh, not terribly bright, but, but here, workable, yeah? <laughs> And so forth, yeah? Then thoughts, you have images, okay, this. A few things rattling at the back, a few chomping thoughts, trying to get in from the periphery, uh, you know, images, sort of gristly graininess maybe, uh, somewhere in the background. You know, you may actually begin to identify various dimensions of the texture of your experience. The more awareness you have of the texture of your experience, uh, the more chances you have to be able to skillfully navigate the waters of your experience. Often we are myopically over-focused on one particular feature, you know, a haunting thought or a, a nagging pain or a grumpy mood or um, a little event that has taken up all our uh, imagination. And we, much of our problem is not just distractibility and the seeking of gratification via following such distraction, but it's over-focus. It's lack of acknowledgement of the good stuff that is already happening. Uh, one of my friends, a monk, um, sometimes puts it like that. He said, if you go to the hospital, you don't blame the patient for his or her illness. You know, if you have to identify with something, identify with the patient rather with the illness. You know? See, connect with the ailment and the health that is held around that ailment. So rather than blaming and over-focusing, if we're not the things who we think we are, we're certainly not our problems. So sometimes good Buddhist practitioners begin to think, yes, selfless process, but I have this huge distractibility problem, or I have an anger problem, or I have a sleepiness problem. And then instead of a self-identity being created out of all our virtues and doings in our lives, we create a self-identity out of our hang-ups. Yeah? So we identify with our neuroses. This is not really terribly liberating. It's just another, an unfortunate and unpleasant and un unhappy version of the same old identification program. So sometimes orienting to what's happening in my immediate experience, naming the departments and just checking in. You know, what's happening in this department, what's happening in this department, what's happening in this department is good and helpful and al al allows a perspective. Once that checking in has taken place, and I suggest you use the Satipatthana map, body, pleasure, emotion, thought, uh, and image would be uh, the, the simplest way I could name this map, or the 
channels. I think of them as TV channels, always on broadcast. You're not always joining a particular channel or you favor one over the others. That's what mindfulness, by the way, is doing. Mindfulness is the remote, okay? You choose with your mindfulness where, on which channel you are. We've suggested you're on channel one for the first few days because channel one, somatic experience, is much more reliable. There is less happening. It's less fast. It's always happening in the present. And when you're in the present, wonderful things are possible. You know, you can be free. Um, you can feel connected. You can learn. You can enjoy. Uh, you can savor. You, um, you can resonate in compassion. You can actually understand something. All these things are only possible in the present. You can never be free tomorrow. You, know? you can never be happy tomorrow. If you're not willing to be in the present, that means you will not be happy, because only in the present you are able to be happy. You cannot postpone things. Some stuff are made only for immediate consumption. So that's why Buddhists are so insistent that the present moment is worth abiding in, even if it may hold unpleasant sensations and unpleasant experiences. It is only there can we learn, only there can we be free, only there can we feel connected, only there can we act, that's the really big thing. If we're not in the present, we're, we have lost the capacity to engage and act. So that's why we emphasize being in the body, being in channel one for the first few days. But you will have noticed there are other channels happening. Despite all good intentions, we are definitely more than just somatic phenomena. We have thoughts, memories, we have a history, we have emotions. And it's necessary to make informed choices how we hold this, when we give this center stage and when we say, okay, I see you're happening, but right now I'm actually trying to do something else. Thank you very much. Can you take a seat in the waiting room for the moment? Yeah. And you learn to do a lot of that. You learn to make informed choices where you direct your attention. And it has, you know, it's a proven uh, experience that basically we need to settle before we can tackle the big stuff. Yeah. We, before we can investigate deeply and gain profound insights, it's necessary that we're able to, in a sustained way, be, be present for the body. That's very simple. This is not ideology. It's just, this is just how the cookie crumbles. It's unrealistic to expect that you can have profound insights when you can't stay with your breath for, for three breaths. Yeah? Because you'll just be blown away. Anything big in that channel would just blow you out of the water. And you're off, you know, spinning, doing what you habitually will do. And we've all done enough of this. You're here probably because you realize you have done enough of this. So let's be realistic. Let's learn to use the maps. Let's learn to practice the skills. Um, the first skill after res resourcing and taking refuge, orienting, to body, tone, uh, checking in what's happening, and then forming intentions. What am I actually planning to do? What is my plan A right now? Yeah. Plan A part of my exercise. Am I doing metta? Is this uh, mindfulness of breathing? 
Am I just doing body sweeping? Uh, it's important to actually be clear what you're doing, rather than just sit here and hope the thinking stops. Yeah? <laughs> you know, that's understandable, and I guess, you know, I've, I've spent my fair time just hoping against odds and against reason and against experience that somehow Scotty will beam me up, you know? <laughs> yeah? But, you know, there's a time to kind of grow up and say, okay, Scotty may be doing something else right now, but I, I, I have to start my own rescue mission here. And, yeah? Why don't I focus my energies, you know? I'm not a kid anymore. I am a kid, but not just a kid. So what, what can I do? What do I want to do? What do I want to invest my time, my energy, my attention to? And then we decide on an exercise, and within the framework of that exercise, we, we give our best. And we meet the, you know, the, the resistances, we meet the challenges, the distractions, the pains, the, the amorphousness of parts of our experience. And we can reorient back to the skills we have learned. The plan A, plan B part is important in there. So my willingness to actually intervene rather than just observe and wait and hope. Okay? These are all wonderful things. The capacity to observe is a powerful thing. But so many things are not actually helped by observation. Yeah? Uh, there is a... <clears throat> There's a tendency both already early in Buddhism and in our culture as well to equate wisdom functions with the ocular sense. Yeah? So much of the language, speaking of wisdom faculty, uses visual analogies. Seeing through, getting perspective, witnessing, observing. So it can sound as if meditation is a highly visual thing that consists largely of me being in a sort of witnessing flight deck mode, overlooking things and trying to not interfere with those things. The, the tacit assumption is if I do enough of this or if I'm cool enough or observant or sharp enough in my discernment, then these things will transform themselves into something pleasant or something freeing or something happy. And some things will. For some things it's absolutely indispensable to be able to observe big things, things that have dra drama, things that have the tendency to flood. It's very good to be able to distance oneself and observe. The visual metaphor always distances us from experience. If you're in the visual metaphor, it means what you connect with is always A, distant, and B, it's opposite. Okay. So if we practice a mindfulness that is only based on an analogy of relationship that is visual, it means we're constantly opposite something and we're constantly distant from something. Yeah. For some things this is useful, but for many things it is not. Many things are not helped by being distanced. Yeah. If you have a screaming kid in front of you, generally they don't want to be witnessed and mindfully observed. Yeah? They want to be engaged with in other ways. Yeah? Other forms of attunement have proven to be more useful than just 
mindfully wait till it stops. Okay, it's called abuse <laughs> and neglect. Yeah, it's a felony. Yeah, so uh, we have to learn different ways of engaging with the topics, the territory of our uh, own experience, other than just distancing, observing, and waiting till it stops. Yeah. Some things need to be approached. So the tactile sense is a much is a useful alternative to the visual sense. The hearing analogy, you know, being a listener rather than an observer, yeah. take, <laughs> takes us into a different space. If you listen, you're always in the space with something. You're not opposite if you're listening. Yeah, most people, the listening sense will take them down into somewhere into the middle of their torso. They're in the midst of the space where sound comes. That has something to do that we have two ears and that, you know, we, how we experience sound. It feels as if we're part of the space in which the sound is experienced. And that does something dramatically different to our meditative awareness if we build that meditative relationship on the basis of hearing. Yet again, uh, touching is totally different. You know? When we can observe, there is no guarantee that what is observed is aware that we are observing it. Think of relationship. You can see people without them seeing you. You, know? you can turn into a voyeur or into a military observer in hiding. There is no mutuality implied in seeing. Touching implies a total mutuality. If you touch somebody, you are also being touched. Yeah? So the relationship is a very different one. It's important that we meditators learn to make use of these differences in meeting our own stuff, in meeting our own experiences. Yeah. So if you find yourself waiting for things to change, think twice. Think, what are you actually doing? And what could you do differently? How could you engage with this experience differently? Those would be interesting questions. We'll say more about emotion and the third channel of Chittanupassana, which is uh, constellating itself noticeably. We are aware of this. But for this morning, I would like to do a very simple exercise focused on breathing, because breathing is our friend. And breathing will always help us reorient, reconnect, and bring back stillness. Yeah. We will have to shuttle between that which is arising and that which is stilling the mind. Some things cannot just be turned away and turned into hindrances and said, I don't deal with you because you're disturbance. And right now I'm, I'm stilling the mind. You know, that's a useful exercise. In fact, I believe it's an indispensable and necessary exercise. But there is a time when certain things keep re-arising. And these are probably worth investigating and looking and holding in different ways. And for that, the breath is very, very powerful uh, as a friend, as a refuge, as something that allows us to shuttle between stillness and insight. Yeah. So please take up a meditative posture. If you're used to closing your eyes, then please close your eyes. Let's just quickly check in. Tone of the body. Orientation in space. Notice anything that deviates from what you're familiar with. 
contrast is always a way in. And then let us acknowledge that we want to dedicate our energies, our aliveness, our intelligence to waking up. I'm willing to not run away when meeting my own story, when meeting my own patterns, when meeting my life, when my life arises. Then let's check, is your mood bright? Is your mind awake? Is it gloomy? Is it sleepy? Is this pleasant or less pleasant? Do you have images and thoughts running through your head? Can you name them without engaging with them? The little niggles, the little voices, the texture, the background texture of your mind right now. Just acknowledge. Hmm. And then let us turn again to the breath and seek a sensitized awareness of how this body is breathing. We're not actually interested in the air going in and out, but we're interested in what this evokes in our body, in our torso, in varying parts where we can feel the breath. So breath is something we do a lot of, can feel strangely nondescript. So sometimes it helps to ask a few specific questions. And I would like to give you a few questions. All of these questions don't really have proper answers. So it's not about a right or wrong answer. It's about deepening a relationship, deepening intimacy to your experience of breathing. A really good question opens a space in which we deepen into a greater intimacy. This is a response to any good question. It deepens into, irrespective of answers, the question itself opens the space, and in that space, something can happen. So let us identify a few qualities of breathing. The first one is very simple. Just how, how deep into the body is this breath movement allowed to go right now? What is the deepest area where I can feel the breath reaching into the body? It is likely that this is not always the same place. It will widely vary from person to person, but even for one person, it is quite possible to vary. Just how deep does it go right now? The right now is the crucial piece. Breath is coming and going and I I'm kind of going to its lowest sensate place. So 
Somewhere in the Samyutta Nikaya, buried in one of the less known texts, the Buddha's description for whom he teaches is, I teach for one who feels, for the sentient. I teach for the sentient ones. I had goose pimples when I came across this the first time. You know, speaking to us as sensate, vulnerable, sensitive beings. Another quality of breathing is rhythm. Just how how fast is that breath? Is my in-breath as long as my out-breath, or is the latter longer? Just take note of the speed, the pause, the length of an in-breath, the length of an out-breath, and see whether This rhythm is uh, what you can discern from this rhythm. Try not to force it or prolong it. This is not pranayama. While pranayama is a useful exercise, this is distinct from pranayama, what we're doing here. We're not trying to lengthen the breath. In this exercise, we're just trying to see what is it, the natural rhythm of my breathing right now. That rhythm consists of the length of an in-breath, the turning point, the length of an out-breath, a little pause, followed by the next in-breath. Can I discern the rhythm of this breathing? You'll notice there's a shift in attention, isn't it? If we look for the deepest place, we're kind of looking for locality. If if we're trying to connect with a rhythm, we have to widen our attentional focus. This is no longer local anymore. It's another element to this experience. Holding the time element to find rhythm helps us to strengthen the continuity in our attentional field. Let's try another quality. 
Another quality is what I call the tone of fire. It's the vitality that is in a breath. There is a kind of energy, it has springiness, or it it doesn't have springiness. You know, is this a flat a flaccid experience or is it a does it have some buoyancy in it? This whole breathing movement, is this something that has an energetic tone that is discernible for me? I like to think of this as the pulse, you know, the strength of a pulse, a breath pulse. So holding your breath as pulse, or taking your breath as pulse for a moment. See what it adds, deep, <coughs> deepens your relationship to the experience of breathing. It's quite intimate if you take somebody's pulses, isn't it? Even if you're not a Chinese practitioner, taking somebody's pulse is an intimate gesture. A fourth quality would be the texture of my breathing experience. So is this breathing, is it rasping or is it silky? Yeah. Think of a, the movement of an in-breath, the movement of an out-breath, and just kind of feel the texture of it. Think of touching different things with the palm and the fingertips. Stroking a cat is one type of experience. And Running your hand over a piece of concrete is another experience. What is the surface texture of your breath? Begins raspy, turns silky, and then has a little kink at the end, or? sort of feathery or grainy.
It is likely that not all of these questions are speaking to you in the same way. I think it's useful as qualities to seek to discern dimensions of your breathing experience. A last one is maybe the resistance of the body. When the breath enters the body, it has to surmount some resistance. Sometimes that resistance is tangible. Breathing seems belabored and hard work. I have to do the sucking and the pumping out. Sometimes it is different. Sometimes it is as if I'm being breathed. As if I'm just sort of a a part of this biosphere that aspirates me. I'm just kind of gently aspirated without doing any apparent work. All the work is done for me. The breath enters easefully and leaves easefully. And often it's something in between. I become aware of the resistance of my rib cage, my tissues, my chest. I can feel places where the breath doesn't go through. Feel into the breathing resistance for a moment. How easy does this breathing take place? How easily? How strenuous is this? How belabored? So play with these five, the depth, the rhythm, the tone, the texture, the resistance. See whether one of them speaks to you in particular, takes you into deeper, more intimate relationship with your breathing. This is not something to do for a whole hour. This is something to just enter more intimately into the sensate experience of your breathing, of your breathing pulse, breathing pattern. Bring them up now and then and see whether they do anything for you. Let's practice for a moment.
Good. I think this is halfway of our retreat this morning. A retreat doesn't quite work in linear time, however. In a sense, uh, when we think of halfway, we've been on our way in up till now, and in a certain way from here on, we're <laughs> on our way out. <laughs> um, but that would be a very linear way of thinking about it. Because really, why I I mention this is there's a a process of entering into this field of practice, both collectively and within our own experience. That as we enter more deeply, starts to offer remarkable and rare possibilities, and being in the middle or in the midst or in the depth of the retreat, the deeper end of the pool, shall we say, there are interesting and rich possibilities. And so just to name that without creating expectation or anticipation, but just a sense of real respect for what's here, for what we are creating collectively, and each of us in this process, in terms of possibility. And what that means is that we perhaps have a sense of reverence, or a sense of dedication, or a sense of devotion. We might find different language for it, to what we're doing here. There are skills and tasks and reflections and explorations that we engage in and all that within a context of this human potential for waking up that we are facilitating here in ourselves and in each other. And so with that, the sense of caring for the whole day Engaging in walking and standing and sitting practices, but the sense of the whole day. It can sometimes be that we kind of practice with some enthusiasm and intentionality and dedication, and then, well, that was good, I've done that now, I think I'll take a break. Sort of, we call it a vipassana holiday. And we decide almost, yeah, I don't think I really need to for a little while pay attention or be present. And that it's a little bit like when we're gathering water in our hands and then we just choose to sort of just let it fall away. Or as if we had a container and we just kind of puncture a hole in it because it feels like that might be kind of fun. <laughs> but then the water leaks out and we go, oh, what happened? Walking practice doesn't begin when we get to the place where we are going to walk mindfully back and forth. 
but right when we begin to move our body. Mindfulness, meditative sensitivity, this that we're engaged in, doesn't begin at the time the sitting is scheduled to begin or the standing. It's here. It's this. There's sometimes this rather curious experience that happens when the bell is rung at the end of the sitting. And everyone, ah, oh, that feels good. I don't know if you've had that experience, but it's not uncommon. And yet the curious thing is that the moment after the bell rings, it's really not any different than the moment before. But we're relating to it differently. Sometimes that's because we get the release of the body, but sometimes it's also that we're kind of releasing our intention and our focus. And it's okay to adjust it. It doesn't need to be held with such precision, perhaps, or particularity. But that's more a sense of kind of opening up to include a wider field, broadening the, the focus of our sort of bandwidth, we could say, using a Kinchino's image of the, the television or the radio channels. So when we move, to move with sensitivity in walking to and from our place of walking, that doesn't mean you have to walk so slowly to that place that most of the people can't get out of the room until the end of the walking period. <laughs> so some sense of practicality or in being really mindful as you go down the food queue and, um, you know, some people's pot washing job has started before you've got to the end of the queue because actually people are moving really slowly in the line. There's a certain sensibility that goes with this practice to see what's appropriate. But that doesn't mean that we can't really be there as we do it. It's that quality of presence. And what we might notice is that we're also impacted by sounds and movements around us. But I think it's not so much the sound or the movement itself, it's when the sound or the movement is being generated without sensitivity and presence. And so someone moving in the room, is no disruption if they're present when they're there. And if they're not, then we might feel the vibration of it, because it's actually not being held in the presence, the attentiveness of the person. And of course, we'll all do that at times. I regularly knock my glass of water over here, or Catherine's is at risk on occasion. And, you know, we're not always able to be mindful. And so we're not setting up some kind of, I've got to really now, in a tight way, try and notice every moment. But just be present for as many moments of this day as you can. And in the walking, that simple dedication to the form it's powerful. And allow yourself to receive what that can offer you. Noticing the subtleties of the experience. Just as with the, the breath, we can start to notice those particular dimensionalities as the Kinshina was guiding us. So too, with the walking, we can, we can start to feel the qualities of, of each step and of the whole body in different ways the sense of the space we're occupying and how we move through the medium of space. Sense of relationship to ground and to sky. Sense of relationship in the body, but
between the movements of the body and the other parts of the body, sense of relationship to the other bodies walking nearby or that we encounter. All this becomes part of the field of the walking meditation. And so although we're centering our attention through the, through the body and in the feet and the legs, there's also an openness to what else is here. And seeing for yourself what degree of gathering in or opening out of your attention serves a sustaining <coughs> of that quality of presence and also facilitates a sense of engagement with this experience, being really open to receive it. So a couple of particulars. Um, we understand from a conversation with staff this morning that at the beginning of the retreat it's suggested that you don't walk on the main road, Pleasant Street, after dark. I was coming into the 6am sitting a few days ago and in the vehicle I was driving I became aware of someone walking on the side of the road in dark clothing at the same time as I was abreast of them. I had bright lights on, dark clothing, early morning. I think the person might have been four feet away from the side of the car. I don't know if it was someone from here. But I was concerned. And... Uh, it's really hard for people. And those are people who aren't expecting to see a slow-moving yogi driving on that road to know and to see. Um, so we ask that you don't do that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.